Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now since the beginning of the year. And for those of you who are new, it's called Jesus the King. It's a, it's a, a series about the life and study of, of, of uh, life and teaching of Jesus. Uh, as told through the eyes of one of the leaders of the early church, the early movement of Jesus, a man by the name of John Mark, but he goes by Mark. And he writes a story of, of, of Jesus called the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, he, he bases his, his account on the firsthand experiences of the Apostle Peter, who was a close friend of his. And, and so what we've done is we've, we've watched as Jesus has launched his ministry in the northern part of Israel. It's an area called the Galilee. And so he breaks into the scene with this, uh, this kind of very simple but profound message that the kingdom of God that has been promised by the prophets of Israel for over a thousand years, a time where God will break into human history and establish his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and joy, a peace of justice, of prosperity, that that kingdom is very near. And then Jesus not only makes this claim, but wherever he goes, he brings the power of the kingdom. And so, so it's almost like a preview of coming attractions. When the kingdom comes in power, here's what it'll look like. And so lame people are being healed. Uh, the blind are seeing. People that have been demonically oppressed are being set free. Some people are being raised from the dead. Jesus is commanding nature. He's turning water into wine. He's doing a variety of like power acts to show the kingdom is, is, is here. And, uh, and, and last week we saw one of the most impressive power acts so far is that uh, he was out that day uh, teaching a large group of people, thousands of people. He'd actually tried to escape the crowds with his men because they were all exhausted. Uh, they'd gone to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd had spotted them. They'd ran ahead, and so when he arrived, there were thousands of people there. And so Jesus had kind of laid aside his plans, uh, loved on these people, taught them all day, healed the sick, and then at the end of the day, did something he'd never done before. He multiplies a food. He takes a small amount of, of loaves and fish, and he multiplies it and feeds over five to 10,000 people. And so one of the things I mentioned last week was that there was much more to this story than meets the eye. Because it was not just a picnic at the park with Jesus. But the, what was going on was that by the end of the day, the, this crowd is really wanting to make him king. Okay, so we need to set this up. Uh, the, we, we know from the Gospel of John that this event takes place in the spring of the year near Passover. Passover for the Jews was like our 4th of July. It, it was their, their time when they remember when God broke into history back with Moses when they were in slavery and through the supernatural power of God set them free from bondage and, and made them a nation. And so Passover was a time to remember what God had done, but it was also a time to look forward when the great Messiah would come and set them free from bondage again to their new oppressor, Rome. And so when Jesus shows up that day, uh, amazing teaching, heals the sick, and then just like Moses had done in the wilderness, fed thousands of people miraculously with this, you know, breaking the bread uh, and the loaves and fishes, uh, they, they put two and two together and they say, hey, we want to make this guy our king. And so they, they really want to form a militia. Remember, there's 5,000 men plus women and children and go to war on Rome. Well, this would have been disastrous because this was not God's plan for the nation. He wouldn't have backed their play, and they would have been slaughtered. It would have just been horrible. And so Jesus jumps into the gap right away and has to defuse his crisis. So what he does is he, he, he uh, reaches out to his men, his disciples. He says, you guys need to get out of here. Uh, let's get back in the boat. I want you to sail to a little town of Bethsaida, not very far away, a few miles away. Uh, he goes back to the crowd, dismisses them, and then he goes up into the hills to pray. But somewhere in the middle of the night, uh, an, an event happens 
that is going to blow their minds, can be something they're never going to forget for the rest of their lives. And it's kind of the next story in their life of helping them understand who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Uh, we're going to pick it up at uh, verse 45. Of course, if you have your apps or your, your tablets or phones or whatever, you can, you can pick it up there too. Mark 6:45, And uh, let's see what happens. There on your note sheets, a section called Night Terror, Surprise at Sea. And so we're going we're to take some time and unpack this. So in verse 45, uh, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. So this is the end of the day. They're wanting to make him king. The people want to make him king. And so he's going to defuse. He's going to make them get in the boat. And uh, he tells them to go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, just a few miles away, on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to dismiss the crowd. And so after he leaves them, then he goes up on the mountainside to pray. Now, we need to uh, set the timeline here. We're going to jump ahead in this next verse about 10 or 12 hours. So, so what's going to happen is uh, Jesus is going to be up on the mountain for the next 10 hours uh, praying. His men are going to be out at sea for the next 10 hours. Now, it shouldn't take them 10 hours to get to Bethsaida. It should take a very short amount of time, a couple hours, whatever. It's a few miles away. Uh, but once they get out there, one of these big storms that the Sea of Galilee is famous for comes up. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever been uh, in a major windstorm on, on a sea before, like on a lake. But it can be very scary. Uh, I've been there twice, and both times I thought I was going to die. Uh, uh, the first time was with, uh, with, one time was with my dad in some uh, kind of crazy lake in Arizona, I can't remember. Uh, and then uh, and the other time was when I was in eighth grade. And uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, I, uh, uh, I was out at Lake Havasu with a couple buddies of mine. And we're so in eighth grade, you know how it is, you're, you're in eighth grade going on 18, right? And you just want to be older, and you want to be free, and you can't drive yet. It's really frustrating. And, and so they had a power boat. They had like a ski boat, and, and his parents said it would be fine for us to take the boat for the night and to go to the far side of the lake and camp out uh, on our own. And so I didn't know what they were thinking, but <laughs> this seemed to them like a smart, a smart idea. We never mentioned the party we went to on the far side, but... but uh, but anyway, so we, we take off, and we're like Tom Sawyer and his buddies. You know, like, we're, we're heading off. We're going to see Engine Joe or something. Anyway, we're heading to the far side, and uh, we get over there. It's just there's no one on this deserted thing. We camp out, and we sneak off this party and come back. And the next day, we're going to come back, right? And we're going to come back, and the wind kicks up coming back the, across the, the, the Lake Amsu. And I find out later, when we eventually made it back to the other side, the winds were blowing at 80 miles an hour. And so uh, when we got back, I mean, it's just like a national park there. And so you got those big, you know, big round metal, uh, heavy uh, uh, trash cans. They are, they are rolling down the street. I mean, the wind's blowing so hard. I, I've never been in such strong uh, wind except on my motorcycle. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so uh, anyway, uh, there, there's just, uh, it, you know, it's just like it's sands flying everywhere. You can't see. It's crazy. And uh, so we were out on the lake when the wind came up. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, what happens is that very quickly that wind whips up the, the water, and now there, there are waves. There's waves, it's white caps, it's pretty crazy. It was scary coming back, even though we were in a ski boat. You're, turning, you're trying to keep turning that, that boat into the wave to hit it the right way. You don't want to be broadside. It's kind of a scary thing. We eventually made it back. Well, that's what happened to them, but it was in the middle of the night. 
They, they take off. So let's set the time. Like, remember that the, uh, the disciples had come to Jesus at the end of the day, and they'd said, hey, it's getting late. We need to send these, these people home. Remember, Jesus said, no, you feed them. So it's springtime. We know that the sun sets between six and seven in Israel about that time of, of evening. And so, uh, let's, so we're going to set it about, you know, seven o'clock maybe. The dinner gets done. Jesus gets rid of everyone, goes up on the hill. He's up there for 10 or 12 hours. And so now they've been out at sea in, in the dark for 10 or 12 hours, and they've been fighting this wind. They've taken down the sail. They've been rowing. They're experienced fishermen. So they know what they're doing, but as though they're experienced, the waves were so big that they're heading in. They cannot make any headway. They're rowing, and they're being blown further and further off course. And so Jesus now, it's about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, somewhere between 3 and 6. We'll see that in a minute. He looks out, and I don't know if it's a moonlit night or what. It doesn't seem to be raining. It's just like windy. He can see them in the middle of the lake. They're out there straining. So Jesus decides to walk to them. Now, if, if you and I were doing this, we'd be looking for another boat. Like we'd walk down the mountain, right? And then you're kind of looking around. Is there another boat I can rent or something? But Jesus decides, no, that's, yeah, what the heck? I'm just going to go. And so he just gets, gets down there. And he just keeps on going, right? And so I just wish I could be there. It'd just be the coolest thing to see this, just to watch him. And you're watching for distance. And you see this guy, a lone figure coming down. And then he just gets to the water. He just starts going out, right? I've heard that if you go on a motorcycle fast enough, it will go on top of water. But I don't know about people. And so you're watching. Now, if you've ever heard this story, you've ever seen the movie, you've ever... Uh, you, you've ever uh, kind of visualized, and we typically, when we visualize this scene, we tend to visualize Jesus walking on the water uh, in very placid conditions. You know, he's walking along very stately with drips of water coming off his sandals in the painting. You know, like Remember the condition of the sea. The sea is waves, huge waves. So what we need to picture is Jesus walking up one wave, and down the next wave for several miles. Now, isn't that cool? Like, wouldn't you love to do that? I can't wait to do this someday. This can be awesome. Next life, I'm going to be like, hey, can I do that water walking thing? But um, this is really cool. I've just been surfing, but I've never done the water walking. Um, anyway, so, so now, so as Jesus begins to approach, now remember, it's three to six in the morning. They've been fighting waves for, you know, 10 hours. They've got to be heavily fatigued. They're not making any headway. It's dark out there. And, and they've never read this story. <laughs> now, you need to remember that. Because we often, like, we often read it as if they knew what was coming. Right? They, no one in the history of the world has ever walked on water. For us, it's commonplace, right? We have bumper stickers. Next time you think you're perfect, try walking on water, right? So even non we've all heard this story, but they never heard, the, the only stories they've ever heard are the ghost stories told by fishermen around fires for hundreds of years that in the midst of the storm, the ghosts of the Sea of Galilee come on the waters to get the fishermen, right? That's the only story they've heard. So, so they look off, and, and someone spots him first. Someone sees him in the distance, like, whoa. You know, it's like, he's coming, like, do you see that? And I don't know if you've ever been really scared. Like, I remember once, we were first married. <laughs> it's not a story about Lynn. Uh, some of you are going there. But 
uh, we, we were camping in Sequoia with my parents. And my mom comes from a long line of practical jokers. And there had been a lot of like bear talk during the day. A lot of bears out. Watch for bears. There's bears a lot this year. So late at night, I have to get up and go to the bathroom. You know how it is? It's like pitch black except for the stars in the Sierras. I'm coming back from the bathroom. My mom's hiding behind a tree. (laughs) And she jumps out. I was so angry. I was about to kill her. You know how it is when someone really scares you, you just get mad? I was like so mad. She was so sorry she did that to this day. She's so sorry she did that. And I was telling this story last night, and Lynn was here, and she said, don't forget the part, tell a part tomorrow about where you screamed like a little girl. <laughs> right, so, so that's what's going on, right? Like, they, they, they're, they're looking out. They're seeing this figure coming over the up and down one wave to another. Like, did you see that? And they begin to, whoa! And they scream. They're terrified, right? And then Jesus speaks. Let's see what happens. So, verse 47, so an evening came, remember this is now between uh, four and six in the morning. Uh, The boat was in the middle of the lake. Jesus was alone in the land. He sees the disciples straining the oars because the wind was against them. They couldn't make any headway. About the fourth watch of the night, which is from four to six, Roman Roman reckoning, time reckoning, uh, he goes out to them walking on the lake. He's about to pass them, and they look up, and they see him walking on the lake. And they, they think he's a ghost. It's the only context they had. And so they cried out like little girls. <laughs> and because they all saw him, and they were what? Terrified. They were terrified. They were just scared to death. And so Jesus, of course, is not trying to scare them, although I'm wondering what he thought they were <laughs> to do about so, like, he's the good shepherd, right? He, he, he's not trying to scare his men, and so he's going to reach out. And so, so picture, I want you to picture this, that I'm sure that he's still away from the boat. Like, they're not going to wait until he's three feet away to, whoo! They're going to start screaming when he's coming, you know, he's away, right? So, and the wind is howling, and the waves are big. And so, they're screaming, and he yells out, and he goes, take courage! It is I! Now, this strikes me as a really odd thing to say. Like, you, you think he's a ghost, right? It's like, I'd be going, who is I? <laughs> right? Like, I'd be saying, like, if it were me trying to make a film, I'd be going, take courage, it's Mike, right? It's Jesus. You know, it's like, I, you identify yourself, right? You don't go, it's me. <laughs> but it's interesting Because in the Greek, what he actually says is, don't be afraid, I am. (laughs) Isn't that good? We talked about this last week. Remember when Moses at the burning bush meets God, says, what should I tell him your name is? He says, my name is I am. And so Jesus, remember Last week, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am. And so 
uh, I'm sure middle of the night, four in the morning, exhausted. They're not like putting this all together. But, but in the years that would come as they would look back and remember this night, as is often the case in our life, that when Jesus speaks, there's way more to what he's saying that we recognize at first. And, and so anyway, he says, uh, he, he kind of says to them, what Yahweh has been saying to his people for generations. He says, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. Think of how many times the Bible, God comes and says, fear not, I'm with you. Fear not, I am. And, uh, and so then he climbs in the boat with them and, and immediately the wind dies down. And, and so uh, remember, by the way, th- this is where, uh, th- this is in Matthew's account, we won't go into it today, but this is where, you know, Peter actually, when he sees Jesus, it's, it's, it's me, it's Jesus. Uh, remember, this is where Peter says, hey, if it's really you, uh, call to me, and I'm going to come out, which I've always thought was this weirdest test in the world, right? Like, I, for me, I'd be like, if it's really you, what's your mother's maiden name, <laughs> right? Like, I, I wouldn't be going like, if it's really you, have me walk on water, because if, what if he's lying, and it's not really him, right? It's like you're going to drop, you know, got you. Uh, so, anyway, but Mark skips that part. And so uh, the wind dies down immediately. Just, just like back at the storm in chapter 4 where Jesus rebukes the wind, the wind dies down. And, and, and Keshus are completely amazed. I mean, this just blows them away. There, there's certain miracles, of, of all the miracles of Jesus, this one kind of captures our attention in ways the other ones don't. I mean, think of it. We're, you know, 21 years, we're still using that phrase. We're still saying, hey, next time you think you're perfect, try walking on water. We don't say, like, hey, next time you're perfect, try multiplying the loaves, buddy. Like, we don't, we don't like, like, what? You know, it's like, it's like there's something about walking on water. It's just impossible. It's just, this is impossible. And, and so uh, they'd seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him heal the blind and, and raise the lame. And they'd seen him uh, uh, turn water into wine, but... But, but it, was, it was like this was a new category for them. And, and Mark says it's worse than that. What Mark says is that the disciples at this point, they just really didn't get who Jesus was. That they, they, they thought they knew. If you were to ask them, uh, they, 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 they thought they knew who Jesus was, but they really didn't. Uh, and so, um, so, so it's like, they're, they're, it's like, they're at, it's like they can't do the math. You know, it's like, Two plus two plus two plus two, but it should equal 10, right? But, but it's like, okay, uh, we've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him uh, turn water into wine. Uh, we've seen him heal the blind. We've seen him raise the dead. Yesterday, we saw him feed 10,000 people with, with five loaves. And so they're seeing all the events, but it's not adding up. They're, they're, they're seeing the events, but they're, they're not getting the significance of the events. And what Mark is going to say is, is he's going to have some very harsh words for them. Because what he says is that they, they didn't understand what was going on because their hearts were hard. And this is harsh language because earlier in Mark, Mark has reserved that word of hardened hearts for either the crowds who don't get Jesus at all. Remember back in chapter 4, they have eyes but they don't see, they have ears but they don't hear or for the religious leaders who are out to kill Jesus. Those are the people with hard hearts, but now he says it's not just the crowds, it's not just the religious leaders, it's his own men don't get who Jesus is. They think they know Jesus, but the reality is they don't know Jesus at all. 
And men and women, that can happen to us too. We can come to Jesus. We think we know Jesus. But the reality is we know very little about who he is. And, and this is a big problem. Because when Jesus is small, our problems are big. When Jesus is big, our problems are small. And so at this point, they, they don't know who Jesus is. And so, so at this point, everyone's trying to figure out who Jesus is. Everyone's trying to figure out. But no one's got it right. And, and so Mark says they com- were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves the day before. They saw the miracle. They didn't understand what it meant. And their hearts were hardened. And so when they'd crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. So it's interesting. They were supposed to go to Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the lake. They were blown off course. They're now at Gennesaret. It was on the western side. It's a, a sandy uh, kind of a, a plain, uh, coastal plain there, about three miles long, uh, highly populated. And remember, just 24 hours before, Jesus had left the northwestern side to escape the crowds because they couldn't even eat. And they'd gone over and fed the 5,000. Now, it's, so it's 24 hours later all those people that have come to see Jesus have been looking for him. And so they're excited he's back. So in verse 54, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus and they ran through the whole region and they carried the sick on mats. Remember back in chapter two, they carried the paralytic on a mat. So now they're, they're carrying the sick on mats uh, to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he went into villages, towns, and countryside. So catch this, Mark's standing back, give us a big picture look. This is now he's describing weeks or months here of ministry as Jesus going to villages, towns, countrysides. Uh, they place the sick in the marketplaces. So you can have sick people, it's hard to travel with them. So they try to guess where he was going next and then they take the sick in the marketplace in the middle of town hoping that when he'd come through that, they, that, he, that they would, uh, the sick would get to see him. And so they begged him to, to let him touch even the edge of his cloak. Uh, remember back in chapter five that the woman that was uh, bleeding just tried to get through and just touch him and was healed. And so apparently word had gotten out and so uh, what it actually says in the Greek, it may be referring to the tassels. Uh, the Jewish men would wear these robes, and the robes would be tassels required by the Old Testament law. Uh, Jesus, a good, good law-abiding Jew, uh, the, and the tassels were, God said, put tassels on your clothing so you remember my word. And so uh, they may be just reaching out, trying to touch the tassels. But uh, it said, anyway, they, they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. And so Mark kind of wraps up this, this era here of Jesus now uh, going from town to village to countryside, uh, uh, having, uh, seeing just healing tons of people, uh, rising popularity. And so, but today what I want to do is focus on this, this uh, one amazing miracle, this walking on water that's captured the imagination of our race, captured their uh, imagination, and it really sets the stage for us understanding a little bit more about who Jesus and who he is. And so there in your note sheet uh, is a section uh, that's called uh, Water Walking. Who is this? And uh, today I want to warn you, we're going to be jumping around in your note sheet. Uh, this is one of those messages that like five minutes before the service last night, literally five minutes, I was rearranging stuff. And so we're going to be jumping all around. Um, we're going to start with one big picture principle. Then we're going to come back with two questions at the end. It says one, but there's really two. Uh, we're going we're to add there. And a lot of the quotes from one section, we're going to mix them up with the other section. So just, you know, be on your game today. Be on your toes and uh, have your note sheet ready. Don't assume you're only going one way today. Think of it like a Bible. We're going back and forth, you know, to different references. So let's jump in. So, so here, here's, here's the big picture principle. 
Uh, th- this may not seem that profound uh, uh, on the surface, but trust me it is, and by the end, I think you'll, you'll see it. That the one thing that jumps out at me from this passage that we just need to take away is that Jesus is bigger. Okay? Jesus is bigger. And, the, and if you're saying, like, what do you mean bigger? Bigger than what? I would say bigger than you think he is. And I want to start today by uh, kind of going back to chapter 4, the first storm incident. Remember, there's these two storms in Mark. And remember back in chapter 4, Jesus had been teaching all day. He was exhausted. He says to his men, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the far side. They head off. And, and remember, like a Category 5 type storm comes up. It's just a huge, perfect storm. And though they're experienced fishermen, uh, they're used to being on the sea in storms. They, they are really despairing of life. It's, they're pretty sure the boat's going down. It's, you know, it's swamped. They, they, they're bailing as fast as they can. They've taken down the sail. They're heading in the waves. They're doing all the right things, but they, but they, they are losing this battle. Meanwhile, Jesus, remember, is back at the back of the, sl- of the boat. He's got a pillow. He's been sleeping through the storm. And if you're here, then you remember he's getting very upset. Uh, he's getting, he's getting really, uh, they're getting really upset with Jesus, just mad at him. He's sleeping through this. And so they finally go back, wake him up. Don't you even care what's wrong with you? And then remember, Jesus gets up and he's, he rebukes the storm. And, and all of a sudden there's instant quiet. In the middle of, remember, remember that whole scene? And, and so now remember, uh, remember what happens. It's the middle of the night. It's dark out. They're soaked with sweat from, fright, from fighting the wind and the waves. Uh, that their, their clothes are drenched from the water that's come over. They're sitting there in the dark, and it's instant calm that's now been where there's been terror before. Remember, it says they're more terrified than Jesus than they were now the moment before of the storm. And, and I don't know if you remember what they said to one another in the darkness. They, say, they didn't say to Jesus, but they said to one another in the darkness. Do you remember the question they asked each other? They turned to one another, and they said, who in the heck is this? Like, who is this that commands the winds and waves? Like, who is this guy? And really, this is the question of the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Who is Jesus? And everyone's got their theory, right? Everyone's got their theory. Like, like earlier in chapter 6, we saw that when John the Baptist was arrested, we saw that, that everyone's trying to figure out who Jesus is. Some people thought he was a prophet, some people thought he was one of the great prophets coming back uh, from the dead, like, like Elijah or Jeremiah. Remember, John the Baptist, I mean, uh, Herod thought that he was John the Baptist, whom he executed, coming back to get him. Like, everyone had their theory. But what we see today in this scene is that everyone was dead wrong. Like, like even his closest disciples were dead wrong. They didn't have a clue who Jesus was. They, they thought of him at this point in their life as, as a prophet, maybe, maybe as a great rabbi. They thought of him as a miracle worker. I, I don't really think they thought of him as Messiah yet. We'll, we'll get to that later in chapter 8. They're not, really, they're not really there yet. But they have this vision of Jesus. And if you were to ask them, do you know Jesus, they would have said yes. In fact, they would have seen themselves as experts on Jesus, Jesus experts. They traveled with him for the last year or two. Um, they, they, they went to his church, you know, they, like they, they, were, they saw themselves as Jesus experts. But the reality was, they didn't have a clue on who Jesus was. And that can happen in our lives, right? That can happen in our lives. Um, and so the reality is, it's not until the death and resurrection of Jesus it's not until the Holy Spirit comes and begins to open their eyes and soften their hearts 
It's not until they have some time to reflect back on what Jesus said and what he did that it begins to come together for them. And their vision becomes, begins to get clear. But here's the cool thing, is that Jesus is not going to leave them in the boat where they are. He's going to disciple them. He's going to bring them along. And by the time they're done, they're going to get really clear on who he is. And Jesus is going to get bigger. And so, for example, there on your note sheet someplace, <laughs> find John chapter 1. Like, like this, is the, this is the reflection of the apostle John. Now, he was in the boat that night, right? He, he was one of the guys who just didn't get it. John was one of the guys, his heart was hard. He hadn't put it together with the loaves. He'd seen all the miracles, but he didn't get it any more than anyone else. But now we're... 30, 40, 50 years down the line, he's looking back on what he experienced, what Jesus said. His Holy Spirit's opened his eyes, and Jesus has become bigger. And I want you to what he says about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the what? The word, the word right? So this is John's name for Jesus, uh, the, the communicator, the, the word of God to us, the one who expresses and communicates God to us. He's the word. And notice what he says, in the beginning was the word. So he says, go back in time, go back 4.5 billion years, go back 10 billion years, go back a trillion billion years. It doesn't really matter how far you go back. Once you get there, he'll be there. He's always been there. And he says, and the word was with God, and the word was what? God. The word was God. You see how his vision of Jesus has grown. Jesus has become bigger. And through him, all things were made. The, the, the universe, the cosmos, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, no exceptions. He's the creator of the cosmos. See, you see how his, his vision of Jesus has grown. His Jesus has become bigger. Um, you move on in the New Testament, and we come to a man called the Apostle Paul. After the death and resurrection of Jesus and the movement of Jesus is launching, spreading rapidly, Paul is not a believer. He, he's convinced Jesus is a hoax. He's a false messiah. And uh, this movement has to be stopped at all costs. He's a great threat to the true, true faith of God, Judaism. And so he's doing everything he can to arrest Christians, persecute Christians, and he's on the road to Damascus to arrest, arrest believers to bring them back to hold trial, to execute them. And Jesus shows up in all his glory, reveals himself, and suddenly Jesus becomes bigger. And so Paul would go on later to write about who is Jesus. And there in your note sheet is a section, Colossians 1. It's under the John 1 passage. And it's from the New Living Translation. And it goes like this. Christ is the, this is what Paul says about Jesus. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. He's supreme over all creation. He rules over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. So, so physical realm, spiritual realm, things such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. 
everything was created through him and what? And for him. Paul says, who is Jesus? He is the creator of the cosmos, seen and unseen, physical and spiritual realms. He created it all and was all created for him. Your life created for him. My life created for him. The trees, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxy, microbiology. It was all created for him. And and this is why until a man or woman comes under the leadership of Jesus, their life is out of alignment. Because we are created for a purpose. And when we're not under his leadership, living for him, it's like our spiritual bones are broken. And this whole universe is broken because it was created for him, but it's out of alignment. And there will come a time when he returns and all things are made right and we will all be for him. This is who Jesus is. You see, he's the cosmic Christ. He's the the image, the visible image of the invisible God. He is the God who walks on water. He's the God of the impossible. And so the question then that this leads us to is there in your note sheet, a question, water walking question. This is where we're going to have two questions. But the first question is there for you, and it goes like this. The question then is, who is Jesus to you? Like, like as we sit here today, like who is Jesus to you? We've seen who he was to his men on the boat that day. He was a prophet. He was a rabbi. He was a, a, a wonder worker. He was uh, a man of amazing powers. Uh, but they, they really weren't, didn't have a clue as to who he really was. The question is, who is Jesus to you today? And what I want you to catch, this is not a theoretical question. This is not just a theological question. This is the most practical question we could ever ask ourselves because out of it flows the rest of our life. There was a a, a great um, uh, pastor, uh, author, theologian who lived at the turn of the last century, in the 1900s. His name was A.W. Tozer. He wrote a, a, a small but powerful book. It's a classic spiritual book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, if you look at your note sheet, I think it's a couple quotes down. Not the first one, the second one. I want you to see what he says. He's, he's writing about God, and, and I want to apply this to Jesus as God. But he says, uh, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? Now, he's not talking about, it's like, you know, what we think we should, well, like, what does your gut instinct uh, tell you? He says, the most portentous, which is another word for, like, uh, important or amazing, the most important fact about any man is not what he, at a given time, may say or do, but what he, in his deep heart, conceives God to be like. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future 
of that man. Powerful, isn't it? Who is Jesus to you? In one of my favorite stories in the Chronicles of Narnia, any Chronicles of Narnia fans out there? Yeah, yeah he's my patron saint, C.S. Lewis. Uh, Uh, he writes, you know, the seven books are kind of, you know, written for kids, but really for adults who, to read them to their kids. I don't know. It's kind of like cartoons, you know, the humor, Disney or whatever. But, um, but anyway, he, he writes these seven. If you've never read them, uh, they're, it's the story of these four children who live in, uh, post, live in World War II era in England. And they're transported away to this alternate universe that's called uh, Narnia. And there they meet the great king whose who's, who's, who's name is Aslan. He's a great lion. They meet the great, great king Aslan, who is the king of Narnia and the son of the emperor over the sea. He's a Christ figure in, in, in these children's books. And, and so uh, in this sec- one of my favorite scenes in the, chronic, uh, in the Narnian Chronicles is in the second book, Prince Caspian. And uh, in, in that book, the children come back to the second time to Narnia and Lucy, one of the children, one night wanders off on her own. She's just really looking forward to seeing Aslan, the great lion, uh, but uh, she hasn't seen him yet. She wanders off one night, and then Aslan, she, she turns the corner, and, and there he is. And she's kind of shocked because he's so much bigger than last time. And, and you know how it is, like the older you get, the smaller things look in your past. Like when you go back to your hometown or your bedroom or whatever, it's just small. But it's the opposite. Like, like he's so much bigger than, than last time. And so they have this great conversation and if you, if you have your note sheet, turn back to the previous page. Underwater walking, who is this? And I'll give you time to get there. <laughs> I know this is really confusing. Um, all right, so, so, here, so she comes around. She sees Aslan. She's blown away by how big he is. And, and so she says, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger and he says, well, that's because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You see, to his followers of Jesus, every year he should be getting bigger. Because see, when Jesus gets bigger, our problems get smaller. And when our, pro- when our Jesus is small, our problems are big. When our Jesus is small, it's hard to trust him in the hard times. When Jesus is small, it's hard to obey him when it doesn't make any sense. When Jesus is small, it's hard to have peace in our lives. And here's the thing, for many of us, we still have a vision of Jesus that we had when we were like little kids, or when we first came to Christ. Hello. Hello. Welcome. That was once me. It happened to me on stage one time. I just answered my phone, but uh, hey, I'm in the middle of service. Um, they're like, what? Yeah, I'm in the middle of service. You want to say hi to everyone? Uh, anyway, uh, yeah. So for many of us, um, our view of Jesus is, is like years old. Like we've grown and Jesus hasn't. Right? So, so we're like, 
we're, we're like, maybe, maybe you grew up in church, and your, your Jesus is still kind of like flannel graph Jesus, right? Which, which was really cool at the time, because flannel graph Jesus was amazing, right? And he just looked so cool there, and you love Jesus, and Jesus loves you, and, and, and he could do everything, and he had little, little flannel graph apostles, and he had little <laughs> flannel graph boat, and he was just amazing, and Jesus was amazing. It was, it was perfect for you because you were small and your Jesus was small and it, it all worked. Some of you, you remember when you first came to Christ, your Jesus was pretty small. Like you didn't really know much about Jesus. You didn't really understand a lot about Jesus, but something told you that you needed Jesus and you called on Jesus to save you and he did. And it was amazing, but you didn't really know much about Jesus, but that's still the same Jesus. You still have the same Jesus. You've grown, and, and your problems have grown, and, and, and life's challenges have grown, and, and we live now in a, in a day of Twitter and, and internet constant 24-7, and we, we live in a day and age where major conflict of North Korea and issues in Syria, and, and there's, there's problems with HIV and pregnant, uh, unwanted pregnancies and a national deficit and, and the world has gotten big and the problems have gotten big but Jesus has remained small. One of my favorite authors uh, is Dallas Willard and uh, you know Dallas passed away this last year and he was a uh, profe- professor of philosophy at USC uh, strong Christ follower. He wrote a book called uh, The Divine Conspiracy. And there in your note sheet, there's a, a quote right above the Tozer quote. And I want, you to, I want you to take this in. It's really profound. He says, here's a profoundly simple fact. In our culture, among Christians and non-Christians alike, Jesus Christ is automatically disassociated from brilliance or intellectual capacity. Not one in a thousand will spontaneously think of him. Remember the question is, when you think of God, what comes to your mind? Right, it's the most important thing about you. So, so, well, it says, not one in a thousand will spontaneously think of him in conjunction with words such as well-informed, brilliant, or smart. You know, there in your note sheet, there's a great verse from Colossians 2 where Paul goes on in Colossians talking about Jesus, and he says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You say, well, what kind of wisdom? What kind of knowledge? Life wisdom? Yes. How to raise a family? Yes. How to make a marriage work? Yes. How to get right with God? Yes. How to pray? Yes. How to trust God? Yes, but here's what I want you to catch. It's not just are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in the spiritual realm. It's all of life. That he is also holds all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in astrophysics, in electrical engineering, in molecular biology, in genetic engineering, in economic theory, in criminal justice, 
and educational systems and deficit spending. Jesus knows it all and he doesn't have to remember where he read it or learned it. He knows all things at all times and always has. How big is your Jesus? The second question I want to add to your note sheet, but it's going to come up on PowerPoint because it's going to to help us out. In fact, it's going to help me remember what it is. Uh, here's, Here's the question. What wins are you facing? What are the wins in your life that you're facing right now that seem impossible to you? Like today, we've studied this event. The disciples are out on the sea. The winds are howling. They've blown the waves up to such an extent that these experienced fishermen that are rugged fishermen, strong, used to rowing, they're rowing with all their might, and they're going backwards, not forward. They're getting blown, not to Bethsaida. They're getting blown all the way to Gennesaret. They're out in the middle of the sea. They shouldn't be in the middle of the sea. They're in the north end, but they're in the middle of the sea, And Jesus can see them, and and there's no way they're winning, right? There's no way they're winning. This is too much for them. It's impossible. And so Jesus walks to them on the water. How big is your Jesus? How, how 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 do we learn who Jesus is? How does our view of him grow? How does Jesus become bigger? Well, there's lots of ways. But, but one of the ways is when God meets us in the midst of the impossibles of our life. See, see, Jesus is revealed for who he is in the midst of the impossibles. I mean, think back to your life. Th- those times where you were facing an impossible situation. You did not know what to do. You didn't know how to get out of this mess. There's a situation that's too big. And then Jesus showed up and he solved that problem. He rescued you. He gave you the insight. He worked out the situation. And what happens at those times is Jesus becomes bigger. Jesus becomes bigger. And once he becomes bigger, then we can trust him more for the next time. It's one of the ways that one of the ways that Jesus becomes bigger is he allows us to go into the storms, into the winds that are too big for us to handle on our own. We're rowing with all of our might and we can't. And then he shows up and he meets us in the middle and he becomes bigger. So, so the crazy thing about us is that so many times we have such short-term memories. Like, like, can you think your life, my life? I mean, you think back, like, he's done this, and he's done, just like the apostle, like, he's healed the dead, he's raised the dead, right? He's turned water into wine. Just yesterday, he fed 5,000. He's uh, healed the woman who's bleeding. Uh, He's done, uh, the the paralytic he made to rise, but, oh, but I'm not sure he can handle this one. It's like our hearts are hard. Like, we see what he does, but it's like our hearts are hard. And, And we don't, Put two, we can't put two and two together. Well, if he's done this, he's done this, he's done this, then I'm good. Because right? we don't know who he is. So how does that change? How does that view of change? Well, it changes in a variety of ways. But one of them is he allows us to go in these times where we're up against something that is absolutely impossible for us. 
And then he meets us. And our view of him grows. So, I, so I'd ask you today, like, like what in your life, what are the wins that you're against today? What are those things that just seem absolutely impossible? Things that, that you're facing, that the wind is blowing so hard, you're trying with all your strength to push through this, and it's just not working. You know, maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's your relationship with God. Maybe there's a particular sin in your life that you've just been battling for years. You can't seem to get in control of. It's a temptation you keep falling to. Maybe it's your finances are just in such a hole you don't see a way out. Maybe it's your career you feel so closed in. There's just any way out. Maybe it's a relationship that's broken. Like, I, I don't know what you're up against. But here's what I know. Here's what we've learned today. We've learned a couple. We've learned that Jesus is bigger. That, that what's impossible for you is not impossible for him. In fact, he reveals himself in the impossible. That's what he does. Jesus reveals himself in the impossible. It's in the impossible we learn who he is. Are you with me now? It's in the impossible we learn who he is. It's in the impossible that Jesus is revealed. And second thing we learn is that when you're in those winds out on the ocean and it seems like you're losing, never forget that Jesus is on the mountain and he's watching you. He sees. And so I don't know what he's gonna do in your situation right now, but don't be surprised if in the 10th hour when your exhaustion is at its fullest, and you're about to give up hope, you see him walking to you on the water, and you hear him say, do not fear, I am. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we, uh, we are just so slow. I, I identify so much more with the apostles in their boat than I do after the resurrection. I, I just like, I think of so many times in my life you've acted time and time again, shown yourself faithful, and yet it's like my heart is hard. I just can't, I just can't always piece it together, and I face a new thing, and it's like, well, you did this, and you did that, and you did this, but, but I don't know if you can handle this one. And God, I pray, I pray for me, I pray for this church, I pray for everyone here today that you would open our eyes to who Jesus is. That we would grow up. That like Lucy, we would grow bigger. And in the midst, as we meet you, that you would grow larger. Jesus, we pray that you, you, you would replace our flannel graph, Jesus. The Jesus that we, we believed in when we first came to you. We, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see you as the cosmic Christ the creator of heavens and earth, all things seen and unseen, the one who upholds this universe, this universe by the power of your word, the one who rules over the nations of the earth, the one who is coming back to establish your kingdom and turn all wrongs to right. We pray that you would grow larger. We pray that for this church, we pray a blessing. Lord, today we come before the courts of heaven as a church. We put in our official request that we would ask one thing of you today and that as a church, you would give us the knowledge of God. We pray today that you would show us who you are, 
We pray that Jesus would grow bigger and our problems would grow smaller. We pray, we pray that Jesus would increase so that we can decrease. We, we pray that Jesus would go larger so our faith can go stronger. We pray for a new vision of Jesus. Father, I pray for those of us here who are in the midst of a tremendous windstorm right now. They are struggling with all their might to row against it, and they're going backwards. They feel like their situation is absolutely impossible, and you seem miles away. I pray you'd speak to them today and remind them that from the mountaintop you see them, and at the 10th hour, you will come walking on the water. You will do what only you can do, for you are the God of the impossible, the God who walks on water. And so, Lord, we pray as a church, as you call us out into the waves, as you call us out into the waters, you'd teach us to trust. Our faith would grow. Our obedience would deepen. Our love would grow greater. That our passion for you would become stronger as we see you for who you are. And that we would be on the vanguard of this universe that is coming to its knees before you. That all things are created for you. And that would start in our lives. We thank you for your life, your death, and your resurrection that makes it possible for us to be under your leadership. And we pray that as we worship now as the King of kings, the one who is from all time, the beginning, the creator of all heavens and earth, the king over creation, the one who meets us on the water, we pray that you would meet us as we bring you our gifts, our offering, and our worship. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Who is Jesus to you? May this week, may Jesus grow bigger Amen. in your lives. As you grow older, may he grow larger. May this week you experience just a little bit more of Jesus, the cosmic creator, the one who dreamed you up, who spoke you into existence the one you were created for. May he be your king, and not just your king, but the king of creation in your life this week. May the Jesus who died for you, who is now reigning as ruler of all creation, may he live with power inside of you this week. For as the apostle Paul said, it's no longer I who live, it is Christ the cosmic creator who lives in me. May experience his life-giving power this week. And may you be used to spread the message that Jesus is Lord, Lord over all creation. Whether, whether you acknowledge it or not, he is the creator. He is Lord. And may God use you to help others come under his leadership that those broken bones may be reset the creation take one more step towards being in alignment. All things created by him and through him and for him. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless and have a great week. <laughs>